want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to That Room Podcast, episode number 43. What's up? I hope everyone is doing well. We're going to kick it off with a couple admin notes. Excited to announce the Afterburn Podcast Store, which is up on the website. You can go to theafterburnpodcast.com. Again, that's theafterburnpodcast.com. Got some stickers, a coffee mug, and some a few different hat variations up there. It's a way to support the podcast out and just get some Afterburn podcast swag. Swing over there or don't. The choice is yours. But as always, I do like to thank my Patreon supporters. Patreon supporters get early access to episodes. They get There I Was stories. And depending on the level, they get some additional content. You can swing over to patreon.com backslash the Afterburn podcast. You can also find a link up on my website too. Which in case you missed that was theafterburnpodcast.com. And you know what? If stickers and swag and Patreon is not your thing, that's completely fine. But I do ask if you're liking this content, as I always do, swing over to the Apple Podcast app. You probably can do it on a desktop, but on the app, you can scroll down to the bottom, hit the five-star review, drop a comment. That helps the algorithm know that people are liking this content and increases the chances that they're going to show it to more people. Just over 600 ratings on iTunes already, which is awesome. But there's about 15,000 people that listen to each episode. So if you're one of those 14,400 people that listen and haven't gone over there, think about swinging over, spend the 10 seconds, drop me a rating or review, help the podcast out. So with that being said, I think it's enough admin stuff. Let's get into the episode with Satan. Sade, man, thanks for uh, joining the podcast. It's good to see you, and I'm looking forward to chatting today, man. Awesome, yeah, long-time listener, first-time caller. Happy to be here, brother. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you're just like, yeah, every day, driving to work, just waiting for a new podcast episode to, to pop so you can listen to it, you know? Hey, it's good stuff. Talked to a lot of my friends over the last uh, year or two. Dude, it's cool. I mean, it's such a small community. It's good to get guys – I mean, I enjoy doing this, and it's good to get guys on here to hear different stories. Everyone has a story to tell. And a lot of people, especially in the fighter community, despite the fact that everyone thinks we're pretty egotistical, most guys aren't willing to like come on here and share. It usually takes some poking and prodding to get people to, hey, man, like you have a story to tell. There's something you got that is probably interesting to most people. Because, I mean, everyone who listens to this typically has an interest in aviation. Most people are not going to get the chance to fly the mighty hog, strap that puppy on like you get to do every day. So, I'll be happy to hear some of your stories. I got one or two. Yeah. <laughs> so with that, uh, you're currently out there in Tucson, raging around, 
and the Mighty Hog. How long have you been flying the A-10? Uh, let's see. Next month, we'll make it 12 years in the Hog. Loved every minute of it. I always make the slow joke with the Hog, which uh, it's still like my favorite thing to do. But I tell you, man, like just shooting that gun just one time, I, I probably wouldn't be content with it, but I want to do it at least once, you know? <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, one of our favorite things to do is when the test pilot school guys come out, uh, they get one ride in the A-10, and uh, I think it's a highly coveted uh, chance to get to shoot the mighty Gow 8 and get to see what it's all about. Slow jokes, yeah, we're, we're slow, but uh, <laughs> we bring the pain, and it's it's a lot of fun. Well, hey, it looks like uh, the NDA just got signed yesterday, so... I think the hog survived another year, did it not? Yeah, it's. I think it's as of the article I saw this morning. The at least the initial agreement that Congress came to, or at least the House came to, uh, save right. the A10 from getting rid of, or save the Air Force from getting rid of A10s, uh, forty-eight A10s. So, pretty excited about that. Looking forward to getting that through Congress and onto the president's desk. Because it still has to go through the Senate, and this is one of those things that if no one's following, the A10 is always on the chopping block. It's one of those things the Air Force wants to get rid of, not because it doesn't like it. I think everyone agrees, like it's a CAS, close air support monster, and nothing can beat the A-10 doing it. But when it comes to contested environments, which we're hearing a lot of China and Russia, near-peer threats, the old mighty hog is not going to do well. And for the, that fact, the the Viper and the Eagle, they're not going to fare very well in you know, double-digit SAM arenas and things with uh, very advanced radars looking at them it's cool to hear the a10 survive but there's a lot of things that are going on up on the hill and i think resource allocation that people are trying to sort through and figure out because it's always a competition of resources are you guys seeing that i mean has anything slowed because you're a b course instructor has your daily life has that changed at all are you guys feeling the effect of that or is it ops normal a little bit i'd say probably the biggest thing is on the logistical side of the house um just because the that tail end of the entire chain has been slow to react to all the different changes of, of what's going on with the A-10. So uh, all the re-winging operations that have been going on for the last few years, and a lot of the, the maintenance personnel manning have been challenges for a couple of years. We went to contract maintenance on the active duty side, B-Core squadron, just because those maintainers were allocated the F-35 and they just didn't have enough guys and they had to make a choice of where to send them. So. That was a, a challenging time. And then now, as things keep getting strung along, as far as the A-10 goes, we're running into some spare part issues, depot level maintenance backlogs, those those kinds of things. So not getting jets back from their their long-term maintenance downtimes in a timely manner, as well as just general maintenance stuff. Like for, for a while, we were short on uh, gun bolt kits. So there was a, a couple of months where we couldn't shoot the gun on a regular basis like we normally do just because we're out of spare parts on that. So we're, we're definitely feeling some effects on that front. I think a lot of people who aren't in the know and not saying I'm in the know, just when I see articles pop up, at least I can relate to it or, or understand what they're saying. Don't realize just the health of the fleet. So General Mattis or Secretary Mattis, a big push a few years ago was the readiness and getting everything to 80%. I think that kind of faded away as different priorities pop in. But I can remember like the last few months I was at Shaw, the, the fighter squadrons were just abysmal with maintenance. Like the jets are just getting older. And in fact, when you mentioned depot level maintenance, for those listening, 
each aircraft will have a depot that they get sent to every so often or for big major maintenance that's not done by your maintainers at the base. Well, Shaw, like they had a jet that had a nose gear collapse. This was 2017 or 2018. And I just saw they had to do the depot level maintenance, which is something they've never done or they rarely do at Shaw. And it took three years to get that jet back up and running. And then when you're talking about only having 80 block 50s or 77-ish block 50s at Air Force Base, and those are, they're not national assets, but you know, the, we're not buying new F-16. So you start breaking those and losing those. That's a big capability drop that you're, you're losing. So it's interesting to see, and I was curious. So you guys have contract maintenance. How is that? I mean, that had to be, there had to be some hiccups going from active duty military to even finding the maintainers to do that job. And then it's the statement of the rate you guys are operating at. Yeah. So that was on the active duty B course squadron side only. And switched back from contract maintenance to regular Air Force maintenance last year. So that can give you an idea of how well that went. Uh, but I was in <laughs> I was in the squadron during that transition and it was it was definitely a big challenge uh, just because there were a lot of the contractors that were prior A10 mechanics or at least Air Force mechanics on on F16s or some other fighter type of airplane. But there were also a whole lot of guys who maybe had some pet boys level experience, if any. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there was a, a pretty steep learning curve. Most of them, all pretty much good dudes, uh, at least the guys on the line. And then I think some of the issues, as with most Air Force things, were in the contract specifics and how the contract was written and in uh, some of the leadership on the contractor side uh, just presented some challenges that never really uh, were, they were able to be overcome. Uh, they were never able to fully meet the contract specifications of the number of jets that they could generate on a given day. Every now and then they'd start to get pretty close to it. And then there'd be a, a, a speed bump in the road and they'd be down for another few weeks and you know, barely able to make uh, all the turn skiing that they were supposed to be able to make as a 12 turn 10. So essentially generating 22 sorties uh, a day and they would maybe be able to generate on average, probably an eight turn six. So, almost half. It was definitely a challenge and, uh, or a challenging time to be in the squadron. And, uh, we eventually really get the, the air force maintenance personnel level back to where it needed to be in order to get back to, uh, active duty maintenance there. It's amazing. These decisions that are made and then the ramifications the second and third order effects that happen down the line, 2012 timeframe. I know UPT, so pilot training, the T6 fleet in particular, that contract, it's contract maintenance and it swapped out from like DynCorp to someone else. I don't know who it was, but let's call it like on average, you had two T6 squadrons at Columbus and in every T6 base for that matter. Like this, again, rough numbers here. They're probably putting up 150, 180 lines a day with probably 60 aircraft plus or minus. And it went down to between the two squadrons, you would put up 15 lines a day with a matter of four or five aircraft. Because when they changed the contract, all that proprietary knowledge that the previous contractor had as far as the logistics of the supply line evaporated. And so that new contractor who said they could do it, they had to go learn that and figure it out. And these, I mean, I think it's like, it's a death by a thousand cuts when you start looking at all this stuff over the past decade. And then you start, looking at near peer threats and things like that. I think we have some unique challenges that are on the horizon 
that if people aren't paying attention to are going to be problematic down the road. Yeah. That's just me. No one cares about my opinion. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what are you guys seeing too? As far as like, we're roughly the same year group. Are you 07? Yeah, 07 year group. Yeah. So in that, in those year groups, not a lot of fire pilots were produced for a myriad of reasons, allocation, the funding, B courses being shut down for upgrades, yada, yada, yada. What that has resulted though is in, in those year groups, 07, 08, I think in particular, really light when it comes to fighter pilots. Are you like in, are you seeing that as a, now as a guy who's senior in the squadron, when it comes to filling guys in leadership positions, is it a non-factor or what's it like right now? I think it's definitely a factor. It's less so on the reserve side in terms of squadron leadership, just because our squadron is already super senior. So you have a lot of guys with 20 plus years and already who are kind of in the competition for, you know, squadron DO and commander, those kinds of things. Uh, but definitely on the active duty side, there just aren't, aren't enough people to go around anymore. Um, the squadrons have skewed way, way younger as a whole. Um, and there's the few guys that are there from that 07 to 09, 10 or so year group uh, are in leadership positions. And there's a whole lot of middle management, if you will, like there used to be, yeah. you know, probably three to five majors who would be ADOs in an average fighter squadron who would kind of have that institutional level knowledge that we were talking about earlier. Um, at least I, that's what I remember in my first ops unit is you had a few guys that went and did pilot training or some staff gig, and then they come back to the jet and maybe they weren't automatically IPs, but they'd be very experienced four ships who had a lot of good background knowledge on stuff. And those guys just aren't there anymore. So you have a lot of young captains and brand new lieutenants running around who are getting pushed through upgrades and, and stuff a lot sooner in order to fill some of those roles. And they don't have the amount of time that you or I did in an ops unit just to be in the squad and to learn your craft before getting pushed to some attached job. So I think, I think you're seeing a lot of that, uh, as far as on the reserve side, I, we just had a big hiring board for our unit and there just are a lot of guys to, to take, you know, from the active duty side to look to, that are looking to transition to the reserves. Um, the few guys that are already that were in those year groups have, you know, decided to stay the course, stay on active duty, and they're going to school and staff and, and follow on leadership assignments on the active duty side. So we just don't have a huge pool to draw from on the reserves for that either. So it's, it's definitely a challenge across the board. Hey, Satan, just to switch gears here a little bit, you have a unique kind of path into flying the A-10. Can you tell me like what got you interested in joining the Air Force, being a pilot? And then what? Yeah. So probably pretty similar to you and a, a lot of other folks out just watched a lot of uh, Top Gun and the right stuff growing <laughs> on VHS in the you know late 80s, 90s there. And uh, I'd always wanted to be a pilot, went to a bunch of air shows as a kid and just kind of had that always in the back of my mind. Didn't really have a huge military influence in my family outside of both who were in World War II. Uh, thought about going to the Air Force Academy, but just wasn't really ready to pull the trigger on a big commitment like that at, at 17. And yeah didn't really consider ROTC that strongly just because it seemed like kind of more, a, a little bit of the same thing. So just went to, uh, went to the University of Michigan, see, go blue. There you go. So pretty happy about that. But anyway, went, went to Michigan, got a degree in uh, aerospace engineering just because it, it seemed to fit with the whole being pretty good at math, science, that sort of thing. And then eventually an internship at Edwards Air Force Base as a civilian engineer, 2004. 
met a lot of awesome people out there, very like-minded, same, you know, just similar interests, great, great people, great work ethic, kind of a work hard, play hard mindset out there. And so went to work at, at Edwards after graduating as a F-16 uh, weapons integration engineer. Uh, and it was a, it was an awesome mm-hmm. job because I worked with a lot of great people, um, got to not just sit in a cubicle, uh, for eight hours a day, got to go in the Viper and power it up, uh, on the ground and test the radar, test the weapons, do a lot of that nature. And, uh, just worked in, in flight tests for a little while. And like I said, it was a great job. Uh, but just kind of in the, in the back of my mind, it was just, I always wanted to, to be the guy flying the jet and. Well, I mean, and naturally, once you said in the Viper, you knew like, <laughs> this is God's greatest jet. I need to go fly it. Doing that test, like, is like, hey, put an AMRAM on station nine and you're seeing how the HOTAS integrates or if there's some new upgrade to the missile, seeing how that interfaces with the jet or what were you doing? Yeah, pretty much, like you said, just checking the ones and zeros going between the jet and the weapon, making sure that, hey, when it's, you know, when you're locking up a target at this range and altitude and you, you fire the weapon, it's sending the right messages to the missile. So you capture all those, analyze those. So kind of in the weeds, nerdy stuff, but uh, definitely, <laughs> yeah. uh, definitely a lot of fun. I mean, I got to just because I was really good at, at playing Falcon 4.0 in high school that way. Yeah. So, so all you parents out there that, that say that, uh, you know, kids who play video games will never amount to anything. <laughs> I'm proof positive that's not, not necessarily true. So, well, so that's funny. I, I've actually had people reach out uh, randomly asking about civilian internships and things like that in the Air Force, which I, I don't really know anything about. But how did you, I mean, find that job? That couldn't have been an easy thing to just go thumbing through the classifieds. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm in Michigan. I want to go do an internship out at Edwards. How did that, how did those dots connect? Yeah, I just kind of applied to a bunch of different places. There was a, I can't remember if it was USA Jobs or one of those online sites. And then my dad had a friend who knew a guy who worked out there and uh, just kind of put me in touch with the right person. Just ended up emailing my future boss, a guy by the name of Tony Rubino, who's a fairly high level civilian out there now and was, you know, kind of the super level supervision at the time. Uh, this is in kind of the 2005 timeframe. Yeah. Um, so just started uh, talking to people. You know, it's, it's, it goes to the old adage, you know, it's, it's not always what you know, it's kind of who you know. So sometimes, you know, you just kind of have to, Talk to the right people, find the right person who at least knows the right uh, guy or gal who can, you can kind of say, Hey, yeah, we got, we got something that you might be interested in. And then, you know, got the internship, was out there for a few months and, you know, did well enough with that. Didn't really have a whole lot to do during that summer just because I didn't have a security clearance. So (laughs) it sounds silly. A lot of time out there, I kind of did, did some Lego projects as as silly as that sounds. Because <laughs> uh, they they do a lot of uh, you know STEM outreach and, and stuff at at the time, so uh, helped a lot a lot with with some of those projects, and then just kind of turned that into a full time job at the end of it. That's pretty cool. And then so you once you graduated, did you go back out there and work for a few years before you uh, transitioned to yeah the Air Force active duty side? Yeah. So a few months after I got out there, um, I knew that it was a great job, great folks, family, if you will. Um, like I said, yeah. work hard, play hard. We'd, we'd go skiing up at uh, Mammoth Mountain in the winter and drive out to Vegas and the things up. Um, but it, like I said, it wasn't flying. And I just kind of knew in my heart that I had to at least give it a shot. Everybody else that I've worked with out there had tried at one time or another to be a pilot. And it just didn't work out for me. Either, you know, eyesight, medical, other other things of that nature. Um, so 
I, I just had to put in all the paperwork and, and I felt tore me apart just cause, uh, you know, I, I hated leaving such a great group like that. And they had kind of, you know, taken the chance on me and invested in me and be like, Hey, you're going to be the next guy to be in charge of this, that, and the other. And I was, it was really hard for me to say thanks, but no thanks to a lot of that, but everybody, yeah. uh, out there was super supportive of everything that's trying to do. And, uh, I figured, Hey, worst case, I'll just, you know, stay here and, and keep on keeping on as a, as an engineer, but uh, I got to give the pilot thing a shot officer training school, uh, specifically to a pilot spot. And I, I got it. So I was only at Edwards for a little under two years and went to OTS in, in 2007, but uh, it was a great experience out there. I still can't be a touch a lot with a lot of the folks out there. And I went to, uh, Shepard for pilot training. And if you know, uh, how Shepard works, generally everybody goes to the T-38 and normally everybody gets, almost everybody gets either a fighter or a bomber assignment on the occasional FAPE, uh, as well. No, no offense to FAPEs. Love my yeah. FAPEs. Right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so there were 15 assignable guys in my class and five of them went straight to UAVs. Um, a bunch of cool. pretty much everybody else got a, mi a mix of uh, bomber and then, uh, kind of a half sock grab bag of flying like dash aids, Q 400s, 800s, those kinds of things. And then there were, there were two strike yeah. eagles and then, and then I got, I got the A-10. So like I said. God, you dodged so you dodged so many bullets. Cat with nine lives, man. She bought a lottery ticket after all that. You know, uh, my pilot training class at Columbus, we all put our dream sheet in. You know, all the fighter and bomber assignments for the T-38 class. And then a week for the assignment night, the commander came in and said, hey, it's happening. I don't know what it's going to be, but there should be heavies in your drop, you know? And that was like the first time T-38s at Columbus had heavies in the drop in. It was literally a sheet with 69 options. It was every guard and reserve base. He's like, just fill out like your top 30 and we'll see what happens. We had, I think we had an E8, a C21, a Raptor, two FAPES, and yeah, a mix. Yeah, but our, our wing commander sat us down the day before drop night and said, hey, I might only have one fighter for you guys. So sorry in advance. Just wanted to let you know so you guys are all prepared <laughs> and aren't, aren't yeah. completely melting down on, on assignment night. So it was, it was a, a tough time for a lot of folks. What class were you? I was 0902 at Shepard. So I started in like November of 2007. We ended up graduating in March of 2009. I rolled back because of uh, some of the T-38 crashes that happened in the late time frame. Right. Um, but yeah, that, that that's that was my time frame. Yeah. So, and then, you know, kind of a sidebar to that conversation, um, the pilot training, the pilot shortage, you know, that the 07, 08 year group during that, that time frame, a lot of things are happening. Like the A-10 is going through, the C model upgrade, the Viper B course had drawn down. Um, so the Air Force just wasn't producing a lot of firepots. It was mostly, I mean, I remember that time, like it was only, I mean, it was almost exclusively F-15Es coming out of pilot training. And it was like a Strike Eagle, maybe two per class. And everything else was like FAPE, bombers, and whatever, uh, AFSOC, you know, so... Crazy times. And then, you know, fast forward 10 years, we're seeing all that come to life now, 15 years or so. Getting old, getting, yep. getting old Satan. You you go, did, I guess, was A-10, I assume, was that your first choice? It had to be. I will, so uh, I, I will confess, I will confess I'm, to, uh, yeah, I mean, just given my uh, background from worked on it, and <laughs> it's, uh, I, I did have Viper number one, but uh, hey, sometimes, yeah. Fate intervenes in in uh, in ways you don't really realize, and uh, getting the hog was definitely the best thing that could ever happen. We had two on my list, and uh, no regrets. Uh, 
I've loved every second of flying the A-10. It's uh, one of the greatest flying war machines ever built. And uh, getting to shoot the gun on on the reg is uh, definitely something you can't pass up. Yeah, here's my confession. A-10 was first on my list out of pilot training. So it was A-10 and then FAPE. Because like, if, if I don't get it the first time, I'm going to hang around and try to get it a second time. But doing my MC-12 deployment, being around a bunch of Viper guys, I was like, I want to go fly Viper. So FAPE intervened. And, you know, no matter what you go fly, I yeah, think you'll absolutely. love it. Unless it's an AWACS. I don't know if I've met anyone who likes flying the AWACS. Just kidding. <laughs> On that note, I know you went out and visited Randolph to check out UPT 2.5. I've had Paco on the podcast recently and then Motor on the podcast because that stirred a little bit of interest in UPT 2.5. And uh, if you haven't listened to those episodes, I encourage you to stop what you're doing right now in this and go listen. But no, in all seriousness, those are two episodes to check out because talking about pilot training next pilot training UP or UPT 2.5 and pilot production, because I think those were born as one of the fixes to the pilot crisis, which was going on a few years ago, the crisis averted. We just removed the crisis name and everything's good, but you got to go out there and check out UPT 2.5. I think the goal for that eventually is to produce pilots faster, more efficiently so you got to go out to UPT 2.5 at Randolph. What were some of your thoughts about what's going on? Because there are, there's there's a lot of talk and I think a lot of concern because people don't really know. I haven't seen it firsthand. I've only talked to Motor really about it. But the fear is the Air Force is just trying to push guys through as fast as possible to get them their wings, to get more pilots on the scoreboard and call everything fixed. What was your impression going out there and checking out UPT 2.5? Yeah, so I was in the same boat as you initially and had the same fears and concerns about everything just based off of all the stuff that we'd seen. Uh, and especially in the A-10B course in particular, the last couple of classes that we got of, of students coming out of pilot training really struggled out the gate uh, with basic flying skills, basic airmanship, those kinds of things. We saw a lot of busted rides in the TR phase or the transition phase where you just learn how to fly the jet for the first time and I'll tell you right now, especially the A-10, it's, it's not hard to fly. It's a big, slow, straight wing <laughs> airplane. It, if you flew the tweet, it's a giant tweet. Uh, so that's, it's, it's very, very easy to fly, but we were having issues, guys, you know, over speeding the gear in the summertime in the desert <laughs> in the slowest jet that's, in the Air Force. That's actually, that's a feat of strength and actually should be a gold star if you're able to accomplish that. Yeah, I, it's, it's definitely <laughs> impressive. And we've definitely handed out some, some pretty good, uh, B course call signs for that. So we were, we were seeing a lot of issues on, on that front, busted check rides, thing, things of that nature that, that did not usually happen at all, or they, they'd be very rare, like maybe once a year. So I was concerned about that and, and vocalized some of those concerns on a, a particular Facebook group that uh, you and I are both a part of. And as a result of some of that vocalization, I got an invitation out to, to Randolph from Major General Wills, the 19th Air Force commander, and got to go see everything that, that, they had, that he had to offer. So. When we first showed up, he briefed us uh, for over three hours. It was about three and a half hours of just him and the, the few people that I brought out there. And if you don't know anything about a general officer's time, it's extraordinarily valuable and uh, very, very tough to, to get FaceTime with somebody at that level. And for him to do that for us showed, showed us that he was serious about uh, trying to change our minds and, and show us what everything was going on. Again, go to his house after that and continue the discussion into the night. And then we saw everything else out there that uh, him and his team had prepared for us the following day. So we got to meet Motor 
and, and some of the other folks out there working on everything. And overall, we came away with a very, very positive impression of everything. He, the reason why the brief is so long is because there was chucking a lot of spears respectfully, of course, and asking a lot of, <laughs> asking a lot of good questions and vocalizing, like I said, a lot of the concerns that, that people like you and me had about the whole program. And the short answer on, on all that stuff is that we came away with a very, very positive uh, impression on everything that they're trying to do. It's not the air force standard of trying to do more with less. They're actually trying to improve yeah. the quality of the student pilot product and the, the pilot training graduate product, uh, across the board using a number of different, uh, technologies, training techniques and, and things of that nature. And, and so motors kind of leading the charge on the, on the science experiment side of the house. And there's a lot of really good people out there that are working very, very hard to improve the overall pilot training product. So not, not everything is hundred percent perfect. We can kind of get into some of that right. as we go forward here, but definitely a positive impression rather from the whole thing. Which for those of you who don't know Satan, if he says that, uh, I say that's actually pretty impressive. When you, when you reported back in that Facebook group, I was a little shocked, but I was like, if, if Satan's a believer, okay, maybe I'll, maybe I'll give it a chance. But after talking to motor, the one aspect that I really, he gave me an example of like, you know, part of the doing like a missionized phase of T sixes, if you will, you know, going out and I use missionized with air quotes, but going out doing formation, splitting the formation, doing instrument approaches, landing in a strange field. And for those who haven't done it, I mean, I remember doing formation for the first time, all my brain bites were spent on doing formation and making sure I got my ops check every 10 minutes or whatever it was. And you're going back to a base you've landed at a hundred plus times already. So it's all these known factors, but when they shake it up like that, it's more realistic of what is indicative of at least navigating to and from the airspace or operating national airspace and doing problems with it. So I think if they could do that without cutting corners and first of all, it sounds like it'll be a good product. I got two questions out of that. The first one is what do you think the root cause for those students that, are, that you saw all those issues in the B course, were they coming out of UPT 2.5 or we can nail one down there? And then what was the selling point for you for UPT 2.5 thinking that it's probably a good product? For the first question, it's a number of different root causes. First of all, part of what General Wills briefed us was a 30,000 foot view history of Air Force pilot training. And we got to see how things evolved all the way back to the late 80s, early 90s, up to the aughts and modern day. And really what happened was there was a significant flying hour cut in the 2017, 2018 timeframe, not just in pilot training, but across the board. I think F-16, B Corps syllabus got cut significantly. I think second, third order effects from that. I think part of it was probably, you know, getting people through who were maybe not as proficient at certain things as they should have been. And then the other part of the briefing that was very interesting was just seeing all the different side effects that can impact pilot training in ways that you would think. So because of the pilot shortage, they've been operating, they being all of the different pilot training bases have been producing pilots at maximum capacity for most of the last decade. So when you have a hailstorm that rolls through and damages a bunch of airplanes at Laughlin or something like that, yeah. you're gone. Those pilots are not, you can't make it up. You, those pilots are just never going to get made in a timely manner and everyone, everything's just delayed. So you just automatically fall behind. 
So weather, maintenance, things of that nature, I think have, have impacted things. And so because of that, combined with COVID, I think there were a lot of breaks in training for the students that went through pilot training the last year plus that they just got shortchanged. So it's ultimately, it's, it's not really their fault. And as you, you know, as probably as an instructor, if somebody doesn't, if one of your students doesn't meet the expectations, I, I think you, you take a look at inward and say, Hey, what, what did I do to fail this student? So we didn't, you know, he or she didn't meet the expectations. And I think they just got put in a bad situation and they did the best they could. And so we just for all those reasons put together, I think that definitely impacted the last couple of classes. And that's just, it, it is what it is. They, they, most of them graduated. We didn't, the few washouts that we had were not really due to those issues that I, I think I mentioned earlier. We just got to do the best we can to hold the standard and get them to where we needed uh, you know, to be. What I hope is not analogous here is the fact that all these random variables that you, you can't control, or maybe they can control, but they start adding up and they have these secondary and the tertiary effects that they, they take five years, they take 10 years to rear their ugly head. Part of this where I think a lot of UPT 2.5 doesn't get a lot of believers. And again, I haven't seen it yet. It sounds like it's good. But, you know, we talk about, you know, all right, one, we're cutting flying hours. Well, if we peel the onion back a little bit, like on Mezzer's mishap, the one out at Shaw, you know, I think he was failed. He never got to go to the tanker in the B course. Now, I don't know if his B course, if the tanker fell out or if that was cut from the syllabus. But I know at the time, anecdotally, a lot of things were being cut from the B course syllabus, trying to save time and try and, and say, hey, the calf unit can handle it. Uh, Bender and I talked about the second because he was the chief in the second part of Mezzer's episode because he was the chief of OGV. And he was when the OG said, hey, we're getting these guys who haven't been to the tanker. What do we do? They determined it wasn't going to be a factor, but, you know, you throw in COVID in there. And now all these all these things start adding up in their own little sphere and it festers and becomes a problem. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? So I'll say that. But now my concern where I hope it's not analogous is, all right, for 20 years, we've been operating in uncontested environments. Our iron keeps getting older and older. And now we're really seeing some near peer threats who are really taking some pretty bold steps in two separate theaters. Hopefully we don't have to deal with that. Hopefully it, it simmers down, but things that are, have been decisions that have been made over the past five, 10, 15 years, as far as our fleet, as far as our manning, all of those, I personally don't think have put us in a great spot to handle that. And that's not, that's me, but you also secretaries of defense have echoed and said, Hey, my, my number one concern is two front war with near peer adversaries. So I don't know, that's down the rabbit hole, but there's, I think there's some concern there. Yeah, I definitely agree on that front. As far as course impacts that, that deal with that, I think we were able to not really, we were able to get away with not cutting our, our syllabi in terms of the B course, just because we, we belong to ACC and not AETC. Uh, so we've run about a six or seven month course. What we have done is we've added a lot of increased technology, uh, more advanced weapons and tactics to the syllabus to where I think we've hit the limit in terms of what everybody can see and do and graduate. We graduate our, our students MQT complete their, their final cast ride is an actual check ride. We'll go through a, a few more up rides, spin up rides at whatever their follow on unit is. So I think while compared to when I went through the B course, uh, almost 12 years ago now, um, 
I think you get a lot more exposure, a lot more breadth uh, to a lot of different uh, tactics and, and weapons, but because of the expense of proficiency with stuff. So I think overall the batting average with, with the gun has probably gone down a little bit. Um, you're probably going to have more off drive or switch errors, those, those kinds of things, just, just yeah. based off of pure reps. And so, I mean, that's just kind of the, the trade-off that you got to make with, with what we've got. Um, to answer your second question about UPT 2.5 circle of back, um, the things that, that kind of sold me on it were really just the, the facts, the, the numbers and, and talking to the people out there, you know, kind of basic communication stuff. It's all a big communication game with, with all these things. And, and so actually getting to see the, the exact numbers and, and talk to the people that actually are executing it were the biggest things. So the flying hours that got cut in the 2017 timeframe that I mentioned earlier, those are getting put back. So it's going to look a lot more like your, the, the pilot training syllabus that you and I went through back in the day, just in terms of pure flying hours. The technology stuff is not replacing any of the flying. So all the virtual reality training devices and, and all the other stuff that Ted Motors working on out there, it's purely additive to make your flying experience more valuable and more effective at teaching you how to fly the plane. So all those things were, were really impressive. And then you know, taking a step back and look at the big picture numbers game, it's not, uh, nothing that they're doing is going to actually produce more pilots in a given year, at least with UPT 2.5, cause the, they're the, you know, they're already in max power on, on producing all the, all the students and everything. So there's, they're not really going to buy a whole lot of extra students produced as a result of the changes that they're making to the syllabus. I did ask about kind of where they see the needle moving on that front. And I think there are certain, certain experiments that they're working and, and theories that they're working in terms of civilian path to wings. So taking, taking already uh, licensed commercial aviators from the civilian side, putting it through somewhat abbreviated A-10 or sorry, not A-10, Air Force uh, training course, depending on their uh, proficiency level, and then getting them, getting them onto a heavy track from there. That is where I think yeah. they're going to see more pilots produced because you can do that in parallel with all the standard U.S. pilot training. I joke, all right, the fighter pilot crisis is over. Is there actually a pilot crisis anymore? A lot of that too, the 11F, you know, as a as identifier for fighter pilots for AFFC code or duty code, you know, a lot of that was not filling staff billets. So I know there's talk of like, pair, there've been talk and efforts to pair those down. So maybe it's not even a factor. You can put just pilots in cockpits probably still is a factor. But when you talk about the civilian, different civilian pathways to get Air Force wings, I do think you're going to start seeing more competition. Let's say COVID goes away or stops impacting travel as much. You're already seeing these airlines pop up with hiring. I actually saw it the day Delta announced a, I think it's Endeavor is like their feeder straight to Delta. They have to you know, sign a minimum, like a four and a half year contract. That'd be two years as a captain at Endeavor. And I, assuming that I guess they don't mess anything up, it doesn't even require an interview at Delta. It's just, hey, all right, now it's time to pluck you from the regional pool and you're going to go to to the major airlines. So all those major airlines are looking at those to fill butts and seats, which the Air Force is going to be competing with, which is going to present some challenges if that's a factor. Because Air Force just can't compete dollar-wise when it comes down to it. There's other benefits, but those are going to be some challenges. I think the Air Force has got to figure out how to how to how to solve that, crack that nut. Yeah. I think, uh, they're probably going to have to work out 
some different way of, of sharing a finite resource. Like right now it's, it's kind of binary. Like you're either in the air force full-time as an active duty pilot. And then once you transition to reserves, you can kind of do both, so to speak, right. um, and, and work both your jobs. But that's as someone who did that, who did that for over a year, that's extremely challenging and stressful for, for the pilots. And most, most people don't want to have to work two jobs in order to do that. So I think, uh, what we're going to have to do, we, the air force, uh, is going to have to do is, is work with the, with the airlines to allow guys to go through airline training, get their line number, something of that nature, or, or just be able to switch between airline duty and active duty military a lot more seamlessly than this current situation allows for just because there, there aren't enough people to go around. And I think the only way to be able to meet the air force's requirements is just going to have to be the change the way we think about doing business and, and sharing human resources like that. I mean, it's a common gripe, probably in any organization, one, our technology, when it comes to computers, et cetera, I know that's a big gripe. It just takes forever to get something that should take two minutes to get done takes 30 minutes to get done or two days because the network's down or whatever it is. Packs. We could talk about packs. That's a great program. And I bring it up because I was joking with this other day, the chief information officer, which was a new role for the Air Force, that guy resigned after like 12 months. He's like, because the inability to get things done and move past, it's it's just locked into, you know, our the way we've always done things contractually, hands tied by law, Congress, things like that, where you just can't get things done. And where I'm going with this is I was a quitter. I'm not flying, but I looked at, you know, I got hired at units to fly. But the balance for me, work-life balance, double commuting, it just wouldn't work out. And now my reserve job, it's a little bit different where I don't have built-in support as far as like admin with orders and things. I got to do that remotely. It is so painful to go to work for the United States Air Force Reserves that you actually question like, why am I doing this? It, you know, this last round of orders I did, it took 25 days to get them approved. And so it's just, it's simple stuff like that. We're like, Hey, I'm a resource that I'm willing to do something for the air force, whether they want it or not, they probably don't want it, but it's, it's simple stuff like that, where you eat up people's time that you got to figure out. And it, it sounds simple and it should be simple, but it's not. And I think I hear more and more people, maybe it's just people asking me because they're following a path kind of like what I did, or they did a similar path. They're doing the reserves, non-flying and flying in the airlines, but that's one, but that's not enough, an air force jet flying. So I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know what the fix is. I think I have an idea, but no one, again, no one wants to hear my opinion. <laughs> yeah. The, I think you get a lot more people willing to stick around and serve either a full-time or a part-time status with the air force. If, if the admin side was just even 20% better to so go to a major airline or any other business and you see how they operate in terms of basic human resources, information, technology, finances, those, those kinds of things. It's, it's night and day. It's like you've been drowning for your entire air force career that you get burst to the surface and you get a breath of fresh air. And it's, and it's unbelievable <laughs> when you get, you know, some, somebody at the company does something simple for you, like, you know, pays, pays a voucher within an hour of you submitting it and you get tears in your eyes. Cause you're like, this is real. Right. This is the thing that can yeah. happen. This is possible, unbelievable. So I, I, yeah, it's been a gripe as, as old as time. You go back to the original Dear Boss letter, uh, 
from the late 70s that an old Captain Ron Keyes wrote. And it's, it's a lot of the same complaints in that are still applicable today. And it's just, it's, it's tough to, to stick around knowing that things really haven't changed in 40 years. Well, it's like, once you see the grass on the other side, you're like, oh man, it's actually green. And I mean, there's always setbacks, but it is frustrating because if I had to go back and do it again, I would rinse and repeat my time on active duty, right? It shaped me to who I am today. It afforded me a lot of great opportunities and great experiences and, and meet a lot of great people. I would absolutely do it again. I'm happy with the fact that I separated doing the reserves and doing the airline. Like it's the perfect fit for my quality of life. The piece is frustrating because you still care about the air force and you want it to like, you want it to succeed. And it's the horse, the proverbial horse you're leading to water and it won't drink because the, the aspects like you just mentioned, if, especially now with this like labor crisis that's going on, you know, people are like clamoring to find people to come to work and work for them. And they would do anything to get someone to come work. And again, maybe the air force doesn't need it, but more often than not, just to go to work on the reserve side of the house, again, slightly different in my type role, I think it's like moving mountains to make that happen. And I'm part of a Facebook group of similar IMAs, individual mobilization augmentees, what we call it. Um, and there are people in there who leave their civilian job. They go do their one month, basically of orders for the year. And then they haven't gotten paid and they didn't get paid from their civilian job. And we're talking, they did this in June and July. And that's not an uncommon story. But when you start doing that to people, and it's affecting their livelihood. They're having to take out loans to pay bills because they haven't gotten paid. People won't put up with it. So the Air Force is, and let's say the Air Force, this is really the reserve side of the house. They got to fix that because if you want to keep the talent and the point of the reserves, let someone do both, but you retain that corporate knowledge. Like a guy like you who has 12 plus years of experience when he gets out of active duty, that knowledge just doesn't evaporate. It stays and hangs around. And if the war bell rings, you put the hat back on and you have that knowledge to go out there and share. So I don't know, maybe it's not a problem. Again, I just, I digress. I apologize. That's all good, man. I think I think we're in agreement on a lot of these issues. And like I said, I think that the biggest thing is uh, just the, the air force, big blue has to just change the way it thinks about human resources and the way it, it does business with uh, taking care of its pilots and, and really all of its people. I always felt the A-10 community was one that really had a, it, it had the highest retention rate in the fighter community. I don't know what that number is. I mean, it's still not like, well, we got 98% of the guys hung around. Um, but I always felt, you know, going out to Tucson, like the cultural is still alive. Guys, you know, love what they, they did and do. Not saying it didn't exist at other bases, but Shaw, for instance, a lot of things happened. All right. <laughs> and so to, to, to skim over it, it was different. Like when I showed up to Shaw in 2014, I equated it almost to like working a nine to five job, except your hours were 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. And you worked weekends. And there's just, there's none of the culture that really made it like bearable. It was a really, I mean, flying fighters is awesome, but it became kind of a, it was a painful experience. And I think a lot of guys got burnt out. I know a lot of guys got burnt out and we're like, why, why am I doing this? But I feel like the hog community didn't have that much or that bad of an experience. Is that, I mean, is that fair or how do you, how do you feel like the hog community is doing? No, I think that's generally true to, to a point. I think just as a community, we try to pride ourselves on 
Well, the, the best phrase I've heard, I think my buddy Movag came up with this, is we, we try to be the social lubricants of the Air Force. And we try to breed <laughs> our young people to to be that uh, type of person, just to, just a good dude, a good bro. You just want to hang out in the bar and have a beer with. And so we yeah. take the, the job seriously. We take the cast mission especially very, very seriously, but we don't take ourselves very seriously. And I yeah. think that that generally results in a little bit big picture perspective with certain things. I think you're generally going to find more folks that are willing to take the time to just, hey, we're going to debrief from the bar today because that was a tough one. You're going to see that right again. And yeah, I could sit here for two <laughs> hours and go through the tape and, and point out everything you screwed up. But really what we need to do to fix your problem today, man, is a little bit of life coaching in a bar. So I think you're you're willing to, <laughs> I, I think you're probably going to see, see that more on our side of the house. Um, but no, it's, we're, we're not immune from it by, by any stretch. I, when I went to, when I went to Moody for uh, my second ops assignment, it definitely got to be a grind there where if you just do everything you're told to do or everything you perceive that you have to do in order to make rank or advance and keep your career progression going, you're going to kill yourself or get divorced or both, yeah. you know, it's yeah. just, it's, it, it. There's, I, I don't know what it is. There's just something in the water at, at certain bases in the Air Force and kind of depending on, on what leader you have in charge because it all comes back to leadership at the end, right? Like I've been fortunate to have very good leadership for most of my career, but I think if you end up in those situations where you get stuck with a less than awesome leader or somebody with a, a different perspective or different goal in mind than what yours are and what you think your units should be, it could be a very painful experience for everybody involved. I think that's true anyway. I do think it, it, there was a push to make it a little bit better. At least I saw with some of the bosses I had at, at Shaw initially, not all, but most, you know, the standard used to be, dude, you were in on the weekends in the vault studying, prepping for rides on Monday, especially, I mean, absolutely. If you're in an upgrade ride, you were there all the time. And I remember Blitz, who I just had in the last episode, he would actually go around the squadron on like 4.30. He's like, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. And he would make a point just to make it loud because he's like, if I don't make it clear that I've left, like no one's going to leave. They're going to stay here because I think the boss is still here. And then I had a DO, same deal. Is like, you will not come in. Like if you have to come in on the weekend, you have to let me know why you have to come in on the weekend. And then we need to figure out, all right, dude, like you got too much on your plate. We're going to make sure Friday you have time to prep for your ride on Monday, making those type changes uh, because guys were just, yeah, they're burning at both ends. And again, as I was leaving active duty, I think some good things that were happening, just making some changes where all these little like career things were going on and the air force is picking their show pony, you know, as like a senior captain and you're like, well, that guy might be really good at flying, but turns out he sucks as a leader. But once you're picked, as a, as a golden boy, like you're on the path and then we, we raise crap crops, you know, to get to the top, not all right. Not all, but man, there's some that filter through and you're like, how did this one not get cut down? Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of changes, a lot of good positive changes have happened in the last couple of years. I think at least partly, if not mostly because of that, the, the Facebook group that we've been kind of alluding to here. So like you said, different ways of, of evaluating and promoting our people different ways of, of rewarding them, different ways of working through assignments, handling family issues, th those kinds of things. I, I think it's definitely moved the needle a little bit on the retention side for sure. And, and improved everyone's quality of life across the board. 
maybe not enough to keep a guy like you or me in on active duty for another decade or, or whatever, but, uh, you know, every little bit helps. And, you know, what I tell, uh, it's, it's a unique situation in my squadron just because you have a bunch of crusty 05 Lieutenant Colonels who've been flying the A-10 since the nineties and griping about all kinds of stuff. A bunch of airline pilots complaining about airline stuff. And you have all these brand new lieutenants <laughs> who show up bright eyed and bushy tailed at a pilot training theft ready to learn. And they get all this cynicism shoved down their throats. It can be, it can be a little bit off putting, but what I, what I try to do to combat that at least is, uh, is just explain the, look, just like you, man, I would do all this over again in a second and I would change almost nothing. And it's been the best ride ever. I've gotten to see it do all kinds of amazing things uh, as a result of my time in the Air Force, and it's it's the best ride that you'll that you'll ever have. And so don't don't get too bogged down in the, oh this doesn't work or that doesn't work and this and that. I mean that's like I said that that letter still holds true today, but it's still the the world's greatest Air Force. It's the best job you or I will ever have. Uh, and it's really what you make of it. So you just got to go out there and grow where you're planted and, and just do your best and, and plug away. I think that's true. It would be awesome to fix a lot of the stuff and make it better because you're like, hey, this is, it is a really great organization. There's great people and you want it to succeed, right? And if it, and if it comes down to doing what it's supposed to do, like you need it to succeed. America needs it to succeed. But the one aspect I always try to do, and I mean, I didn't come up with it, but yeah, like pick one thing and just try to make it better. Like you can't make it, you can't make everything better, right? When you get put in these jobs. So whatever it is your your thing is, just nail that and make that that better. And then the next guy's gonna roll in and figure out something else he cares about and tries to make it better, but it's not all it's definitely not gonna be perfect. You just sometimes you just gotta shake your head, you know? Like what if what if? What if? They're always open. Yeah. But speaking of seeing some awesome places and things, I think you and I, we missed each other at Kandahar. You were supposed to go to Kandahar 2012. Is that correct? Or 2011? So I was, yeah, I got there in January of 2012. There was still an A-10 squadron there. But you've seen some amazing places in the world, one of which is Afghanistan. You spent some time there. How the past couple months in processing everything that's gone on with Afghanistan, what are your thoughts on that? How have you, how have you dealt with that? What are the bros saying? Yeah, it was, a, it was definitely a tough time uh, in the squadron because, I mean, you, the A-10 is built really, obviously, for the Cold War, full of gap, you know, force-on-force Russia experience. But, I mean, that's been our identity as a community for the last 20 years is supporting the guys on the ground. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's what we do. We do close air support, so we train to danger close troops in contact shooting within you know less than 100 meters of friendly forces and so pretty much everybody in the a10 community put their heart and soul over the last 20 years of supporting the soldiers and marines and everybody else on the ground in afghanistan and to see it kind of go up and smoke like that so quickly i think really shook a lot of people i would say it wasn't unexpected i think everybody kind of knew that something like that was probably yeah. going to happen sooner or later. I just don't think anybody thought it was going to happen a that rapidly and b without a plan to seemingly at least without a plan to get all of our allies and and other uh, American citizens out of there in a timely and safe manner. 
Probably the, you ask about how it impacted guys in the squadron. One of our guys used to be an A-29 instructor at, at Moody. So he used to teach the Afghan Air Force guys how to do close air support in the A-29. And so he's standing there at our ops desk on this, the, this crazy worldwide conference call that was going on for a while between himself, a bunch of other A-29 pilots, various ranks some people in the state department and some people from other three-letter agencies will say, and the conversations were stuff like, okay, I'm talking to Abdul and he's at the black gate outside of Karzai airport. And he, there's nobody there and the gate's locked and he doesn't know where to go. He thinks there's bad guys to the South of him. So we can't go there. Where should we tell him to go? And so they're working personnel recovery in real time over the phone for, for some of these folks. And another guy, he, uh, the guy made it to the right gate, but he didn't have, you know, the right identification or anything to get through the gate. So my buddy took a selfie of himself holding a sign that basically said, Hey, I know Muhammad X, whatever his name was, he is an ally of the United States air force. Please let him through. And so the guy took that selfie on his phone and showed it to the Marine at the gate and he got through that way. So there was lots of, lots of crazy stuff like that going on for, for the few weeks before, uh, before they finally, uh, pulled the plug on the airport. So that, that's kind of a, a snapshot of that, but yeah, it's been, it's been a challenge, I think for a lot of folks and for the A-10 community as a whole to kind of square the circle on how to process everything. Uh, cause a lot of us have lost, you know, friends or at least know people that, that have lost their lives fighting over there. That's one thing. I think, like you said, everyone knew that was going to, this was the end result. That's what was going to happen. The fact that it happened so fast. There really, there was, if there was a plan, it was an incredibly poor plan or executed incredibly poor to get everyone out before they needed to get out in 2012. What were uh, some of your deployments like in Afghanistan? Was it really busy when you were there or? Yeah. So I just did one tour there. Like you said earlier, I was supposed to go to Kandahar in 2011 and we ended up getting sent to uh, Korea for a theater security. And so I had never been anywhere before, so I was excited to go there, but most of the rest of the squadron had just gotten to Tucson from Korea and was eager to deploy for the first time. And so they were not happy <laughs> to get uh, sent back to Osan. I got to, I'll tell you, if, if we got time later, I got a pretty good story about, about getting sent on that deployment. But as far as Afghanistan goes, I was there one time to Bagram in late 2012 into 13. So we were there for the winter. And so not a whole lot of action once winter set in, but we were there, we got there in September, October. And so there was still a decent amount of fighting going on when we were there. And a lot of the other folks in the squadron had already gotten to employ for the first time. And I was one of the last guys who had dropped or shot anything yet and it started to get the, started to get the itch. And then lo and behold, it was like late October, got called to a troops in contact situation far Northeast up near the Pakistan border. I was flying with uh, slip, the wings, wing weapons officer at the time who would go on to be my group commander now in the reserves. But, um, we, we ended up going to, to answer that tick and you could hear in the voice of the JTAC that this wasn't a, a routine quote unquote troops in contact to try to get some air overhead. This was a, a serious situation where a convoy is getting hit from three different hilltops, uh, in different firing positions there and they needed air support bad. So we ended up going to work and cleaning off. Almost all of our jets. I know Slip cleaned off uh, all of his bombs and most of his gun, and I emptied just about everything except for like the low collateral damage bomb that doesn't really do much 
if you hit right on the target. So it was, it was a, a pretty intense day. And then uh, a couple of months after that, the ACE of the CCT unit that was it, part of that convoy, they were cycling out of country. And uh, one man, Staff Sergeant, will always remember Sergeant Aaron Davis, big old burly dude, big beard, just went to the trouble of finding me at Bagram before we're leaving. And yeah, big old bear hug from a big dude. Because <laughs> we, we happened to be there at the right place uh, at the right time. That so that was that was probably the high point of the deployment for me. Because once winter sets in, everyone just kind of goes back to their yeah. their huts and caves and stuff, and just tries to stay warm and right out the winter. It was definitely rewarding to put all the those years of training and everything to use, and be there to help the guys on the ground. Yeah, it was a pretty challenging. I mean, it's bills out uh, out that direction. Were you guys really working in and out of the uh, the mountains there? Was yeah, it's pretty steep mountains. It's is right there just southeast of the Kunar Valley. So pretty high terrain, 10, 12,000 foot for some of it. This particular day, even though it's in a little bit of a valley, so maybe not quite that high, but definitely something to consider as well as the uh, proximity to the Pakistan border. Because as all of us who's flown in Afghanistan knows, you, <laughs> you put one toe across the line there and you're getting sent home. So terrain was definitely challenging. But again, the A-10 is really built to, to work in low, working close. We didn't have to do anything super low. But that particular day, the weather was, was quite good. But seeing, read all the stories about guys like Leroy, you know, working under the weather, danger close, and or at night in a lot of the situations. And it's, it's just another day on the job for, for a lot of us. Yeah, there are a lot of stories out there. A lot will we'll probably never see the light of day or, you know, past the squadron. With dudes and dudettes who are, I mean, hanging it out there in the weather, dropping down below it or getting into the mountains, getting into the valleys, um, that just sporty stuff. So it's pretty, it's pretty incredible that we have the technology or don't have the technology and people and they use that airmanship to make it happen. You mentioned you guys were supposed to go TSP to Korea. I imagine a lot of, like you said, a lot of guys weren't really happy with it, but you had a story that went along with Korea. Can you tell everyone a little bit about like what that TSP is and you know, what, what, I mean, what is that? And you can share your story if you like. Yeah. So TSP stands for theater security package. And it's basically when the Air Force needs to send a, a deployable unit someplace, but isn't a combat zone. So in this particular case, uh, I believe it dates back to I want to say 2007 when, a, when the army took a battalion of Apache helicopters off the Korean peninsula to go support the surge in Iraq, the air force started to backfill the tactical aircraft requirement for that because with treaties and stuff, you need to have a certain number of air, uh, airplanes, airframes on the Korean peninsula at all times. So the air force started rotating different squadrons into meet those needs and because of different pots of money and, and some other stuff. Our squadron got tagged for that even at the last second and a different A-10 squadron got to go deploy instead. So while we were there, um, you know, it's really just like any, any other TEY where once you kind of get in your, your sea legs about you, you're really just kind of flying CT missions and doing upgrades and those kinds of things. So we went to the P518 border region with North Korea a few times. And I went through the FAC A upgrade, so it was a pretty stressful time there, but, uh, we worked hard, but we played hard. We played really hard. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say without getting into too much detail there, we, we made, there, there was some videos on YouTube once upon a time about some of the stuff <laughs> that went down there that I will not reference directly now, but it was, 
we, we had a good time. But the story involves that when we first were getting ready to go, the day before we went, the deputy commander of Air Combat Command, this guy by the name of Major General Dave Goldfein. And so he flew out to DM to talk to us in the squadron about why we got set to Korea instead of uh, Kandahar, because that was ultimately his call. He had to decide who was going to go where. And so he sat us all down in the mass briefing room and, and went into de detail about all the different reasons why he had to do what he did. And he was very apologetic because he knew that most of the squadron was ready to go. We would much rather go into combat and do actual close air support mission than go party in Korea. And then towards the end of his speech, he, he said, Hey, where's, where's the LPA? And the LPA, for those who don't know, is the Lieutenant Protections Agency, i.e. The, the young people in the squadron. And at the time, lieutenants were extremely rare in fire squadrons. I was the only one. So I sheepishly raised my <laughs> hand and he locked eyes on me. And he's like, you, Lieutenant, this is a direct order. When you get over to Korea and you get into whatever bar or hooch or wherever you guys want to end up hanging out over there, I want you to print out my official photo and put it on the dartboard. And I want you to throw darts at it because you should be mad that <laughs> you are not in combat and you were just hanging out in Korea drinking with your buddies. Do you understand? <laughs> I said, yes, sir. And we did it, but it, I didn't feel quite as, as angry as I think he thought we were going to feel about that just because he, you know, once upon a time wrote a book, sharing success, owning failure, and he, he owned the failure in that situation. Uh, that always stuck with me through all these years. For those who don't know, yeah, obviously he went on to become the chief staff. He was the CFAC right after that. Cause he was a CFAC when I was in Kandahar and then the chief staff of the air force. And I know, I feel like his approval rating was pretty high. Not that the approval ratings matter uh, in that, but I know a lot of people had a tremendous amount of respect for him, me included. So sounds like he, he was the man. Awesome guy. Yeah. Always had, had great admiration and respect for him and, and thought he, like, like we were talking about earlier with all the other issues in terms of retention and so forth. I think he did the best he could to try to steer the ship in the right direction, but it's, it's really, really tough to, to move the needle in, in that regard. Even like at the four-star level, there, I know there are things that they can do and then they can't do. And there's things that their hands are tied. That's just like, it's moving mountains in order to try to make it happen. That even as a four-star general, it's just not going to make a difference. They obviously have a lot of influence, right? But. Still, at the end of the day, this is a big bureaucracy and a big ship, and it takes a lot. It has a lot of momentum, and to turn that, it takes a lot, lot of effort. That's not necessarily possible all the time. But, and that's, yeah, that's General Golfing Fingers, which shot down in Kosovo. There's his, I think his video, I think the, it's a YouTube video is out there of him, his, his HUD tape, and then getting rescued, which is pretty, pretty harrowing and pretty incredible how all that worked out and played out at the end. He'd be a good one to get on the podcast. I'm sure he'd <laughs> really, want, really want to stop by the Afterburn podcast. <laughs> well, he's got um, all the time in the world now that he's retired, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, they, they got they got nothing else going on once they retire. So, no, that's pretty cool. Let's see, Satan. The one thing before we kind of wrap up here, you and I had the fortunate opportunity of doing some demo-type things, if you will. You do in Heritage, but you... And uh, Possum, you guys were the first four to kind of stand back up A-10 Heritage Flight, which then became the A-10 Demo Team after sequestration. What was it like going through, getting that, that program st stood back up and get it running? It was an awesome opportunity. Uh, the, the high point, you know, one of the funnier parts of this is uh, just how we 
Possum and I got involved. We were just sitting in a squatter bar. Uh, we were B course instructors at the time on the active duty side. And we were just kind of grumbling about students and just griping about those general daily uh, operations around, around the squatter. And the deputy ops group commander walks in and says, Hey, uh, so-and-so decided to put A-10s back out on the air show circuit. And they're looking for a couple of different guys that want to go do it. You guys want to do it? And we looked at each other like, yeah, <laughs> we'll do it. <laughs> and we had, uh, we had a unique uh, experience with that just because I was the, I was the projo and he was a deputy projo of the, the heritage flight conference the previous yeah. year. So we kind of got a little taste of, of the action on all that stuff and got him backseat rides in, in Mustangs already. So to get a chance to go back into that world and, and be a part of that was, was a huge opportunity, incredible honor getting to fly with all the guys on the, the heritage flight side, like, like tuna, and Steve Hinton and some other basically legends in, in aviation it was an absolutely incredible experience. I did about seven or eight air shows, possibly about the same number, but it, it was, you know, it's one of those things where when you're a young fighter pilot, especially a combat pilot, you make fun of the demo guy and the Thunderbirds yeah. and, and that sort of thing. You don't, you're like, oh yeah, listen to music or whatever. Who cares? And then once you get to see a, how you get treated out on the air show circuit, but B and more importantly, just the, the incredible impact you have on, on all the, the kids and, and everybody else that, that goes to those things. It's uh it's very, very humbling and very rewarding uh, looking back on it. But, uh, yeah, we, we had a lot of fun, you know, all the other stuff that, that we got to do together after that, between uh, Super Bowl and ICAST and everything else was, was really a blast. Definitely another high point in my career. No doubt. Challenges flying with Warbirds in the A-10. So obviously the Viper wants to go fast. Most Warbirds, I mean, while the Mustang is fast, it's not Viper fast. They're like flying with the Sky Raider, it's just the, the Viper's just yelling the entire time of like, what are you doing? Were there any unique challenges flying A-10 alongside the Warbirds? Man, I know it's slow, so that's why I ask. <laughs> yeah, the, the speeds were not a factor uh, to, to answer <laughs> your speed question. It was it was mostly in the wheelhouse where we like to be. Uh, the Sky Raider was also a challenge for us just because at the speeds that that thing flew at, it was kind of right on the steep part of the power curve for our throttle settings. So anytime you had to make a small power correction, you had to do like three or four throttle movements, plus maybe fan the boards a little bit, just because it was like right on the edge of, of a high yeah. level of sensitivity. So that, that was a challenge. But the thing is, and this was hammered home during the, the heritage flight training is, is we have a massive wingspan. We are a much bigger fighter than just about yeah. anybody else, except for maybe the Raptor. We're pretty close to Raptor, but those guys have been flying with the Raptor for really its entire existence. The A-10s have been gone for the better part of a decade. So it took a little bit of getting used to for, for those guys, just because if, you know, the worst happens and, and we swap paint, the A-10s are going to be just fine, but the Warbirds probably done. And those guys just don't have the time to get out of the seat, out of the cockpit. So we just really studied the visual references for flying off of the different Warbirds and just stayed focused on those and not try to make it look too cool or like getting a little bit closer. That's one thing I remember when you put those, when you put the different planes together, that's really when you get an appreciation for the size of each aircraft, obviously, but flying with a warbird out front and you're on and the, and the Viper on the wing of one and then looking across and you got an A-10 on the wing, just any little bump that goes through the air, like the A-10 with that straight wing, 
was just flopping around. And when you see just, it looks like there's a huge moment arm out there just moving up and down. You're like, and it's just this fly swatter just waiting to smack the P-51's wing or something like that. So you're like, oh, that could be bad. And then also just like the length, you know, like a Viper and a Mustang, it's almost like flying. I mean, the fingertip references are essentially, you know, the same or hailing back to like the T6 days. They're like the same. So it's relatively comfortable. But yeah, the A-10, man, that's, that's a big old plane. It's a big, big plane. You used to fly it after a little bit of while, a little bit of time, but yeah, definitely challenging in uh, certain situations. Well, before we wrap up here, Satan, I would like just kind of recircle back to like the B course and stuff and kind of get your take and vibe. I know we, it, we talked about it at certain points, but culminate it and wrap it all up here in a nice pretty bow. What, like, what is your vibe and feeling for the A-10 community, the Air Force community, as a pilot community as a whole? Do you think we're trending in the right direction? What, what's Satan's take on it down there at the, the bro level? I think overall, in terms of pilot training, uh, at, at least with the initial vector, the the theory and the ideas behind UPT 2.5, I think I think they're they're all pretty sound. One thing that we were supposed to do on that front was go to Vance after going to Randolph and see UPT 2.5 in action, um, just because they've been executing it for a while, and it's going to be a lot different in a real pilot training base as opposed to Randolph, which is pilot instructor training and not. They, right. they do trade some, some students there, but, um, I was very curious to see how it's actually going to be, uh, received and how it's, how it's been executing. We did get to talk to a few UPT 2.5 students at Randolph and it sounded like there was, a, there were some challenges there as far as getting to fly sorties frequently enough because they were in the pit squadron there. So they, they are in a squadron that's not designed for pilot training. It's designed for pilot instructor training. So they're trying to do basically two jobs at once with the same number of airplanes that they're doing more with less thing than we always gripe yeah. about. So I was, I'd be very curious to go back to a pilot training base and see how everything's meeting the reality of the actual flight line and how the students are receiving it. And so I, I suspect it's, it's, there's going to be some challenges there, at least for the, for the near future, but I, I like where, where they're going with that. As far as the E10B course goes, I think, like I said earlier, we've, we've pretty much hit the limit in terms of stuff that we can cram into a six, seven month course. And I think we're going to have to start making either some, some trade-offs in the future or just accept that maybe we don't graduate students mission qualified and uh, we've been doing it for the better part of a decade. And it's been, I think, reasonably successful, but I think if we start getting some of the more advanced weaponry to try to stay relevant in the current fight, it's it's definitely going to be a challenge. Because imagine when you mentioned it, but going through the B course when you went through, GPU 54 wasn't a thing, probably GPU 38 wasn't a thing. And now we're talking, you know, laser rockets. There's so many different weapons, GPU 39s, all these things that have come on online that you're asking people to figure out and do in the same amount of time that it's just not there. So it will be interesting to see what happens. I appreciate your perspective and willingness to to share it. Yeah. When I went through the B course, um, the C model was relatively new. It had been around for about two, three years. So most of the instructors still had more A model time than C model time. And the A model was a super simple airplane yeah. by comparison in terms of tactics and weapons. Like we didn't have a cast phase in the B course. We flew with the target pod maybe two or three times. And then that was kind of it. The target pods were really reserved for the instructors. And the data link stuff that we had was, was pretty basic. And so now 
students graduate having seen everything as far as the target pot goes, data link. We now have the Helimata queuing system that they get to see and, and use. It's, it's, it's a huge, huge difference. Which is what needs to happen. Well, Satan, man, I appreciate you taking the time. Join me on the podcast, talk a little flying and sharing some stories. I appreciate it. You bet, man. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And it's uh, always great to, to see you and talk about flying with you. Yeah, no doubt. All right. Thanks for listening. In. Hope you enjoyed today's episode with Satan. Again, you can swing over to the afterburnpodcast.com if you're looking to shop for some gear, get links to Patreon or get links to this episode up on YouTube or flying videos. Thanks for listening. In. Until next time, don't bring a week.